Chapter One of From Sail to Steam by Alfred Thayer Mahan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Naval Conditions Before the War of Secession The Officers and Seamen. Part Two. Talking of examinations, a comical incident came under my notice immediately after the War of Secession when there were still employed a large number of those volunteer officers who had honorably and usefully filled up the depleted ranks of the regular service an accession of strength imperatively needed there was among them naturally inefficience as well as efficience one had applied for promotion and a board of three among them myself was assembled to examine several commonplace questions in seamanship were put to him of which I now remember only that he had no conception of the difference between a ship moored and one lying at single anchor, a subject as pertinent today as a hundred years ago. After failing to explain this, he expressed his wish not to go further, whereupon one of the board asked why, if ignorant of these simple matters, he had applied for examination. His answer was, I did not apply for examination, I applied for promotion. Even in this case, when the applicant had left the room, the president of the board, then a somewhat notorious survival of the unfittest, long since departed this life, asked whether we refused to pass him. The third member, himself a volunteer officer, and myself, said we did. Well, he rejoined, you know this man may get a chance at you some day this prudent consideration however did not save him such tolerance toward the unfit the reluctance to strike the individual in the interests of the community was but a special and not very flagrant instance of the sympathy evoked for much worse offenders murderers and defrauders in civil life in such cases the average man except when personally affected sides unreasonably with the sufferer and against the public witness the easily signed petitions for pardon which flow in it can be understood that in a public employment civil or military there will usually be reluctance to punish and especially to take the bread out of the mouths of a man and his family by ejection usually only immediate personal interest in efficiency can supply the needed hardness of heart speaking after a very extensive and varied inside experience of courts-martial i can say most positively that their tendency is not toward the excessive severity which i have heard charged against them by an eminent lawyer on the contrary the difficulty is to keep the members up to the mark against their natural and professional sympathies their superiors in the civil government have more often to rebuke undue leniency how much more hard when instead of an evil-doer one had only to deal with a good-tempered kindly ignoramus or one perhaps who drew near the border-line of slipshod adequacy and especially when to do so was to initiate action apparently invidious and probably useless as in cases i have cited it was easier for a captain or first lieutenant to nurse such a one along through a cruise and then dismiss him to his home, thanking God, like Dogberry, that you are rid of a fool, and trusting you may see him no more. But 
this confidence may be misplaced. Even his ghost may return to plague you, or your conscience. Basil Hall tells an interesting story in point. When himself about to pass for lieutenant in 1808, while in an anteroom awaiting his summons, a candidate came out flushed and perturbed. Hall was called in, and one of the examining captains said to him, Mr. Blank, who has just gone out, could not answer a question which we will put to you. He naturally looked for a stunner, and was surprised at the extremely commonplace problem proposed to him. From the general incident he presumed his predecessor had been rejected, but when the list was published, saw his name among the past. Some years later he met one of the examiners, who in the conversation recalled to him the circumstances. "'We hesitated,' he said, "'whether to let him go through, but we did, and I voted for him. A few weeks later I saw him gazetted second lieutenant of a sloop of war, and a twinge of compunction seized me. Not long afterwards I read also the loss of that ship, with all on board. I have never known how it happened, but I cannot rid myself of an uneasy feeling that it may have been in that young man's watch. He added, Mr. Hall, if ever you are employed as I then was, do not take your duties as lightly as I did. Sometimes retribution does not assume this ghastly form, but shows the humorous side of her countenance, for she has two faces, like the famous ship that was painted a different color on either side, and always tacked at night, so that the enemy might imagine two ships off their coast. I recall, many of us recall, a well-known character in the service, Bobby, who was a synonym for inefficiency. He is long since in his grave, where reminiscence cannot disturb him, and the bobby can reveal him only to those who knew him as well and better than I, and not to an unsympathetic public. Well, bobby, after much indulgence, had been retired from active service by that convulsive effort at re-establishment known as the Retiring Board of 1854-55, to which I am coming if ever I see daylight through this thicket of recollections which seem to close around me as I proceed, instead of getting clearer. The action of that board was afterwards extensively reviewed, and among the data brought before the reviewers was a letter from a commander, who presumably should have known better, warmly endorsing Bobby. In consequence of this, and perhaps other circumstances, Bobby was restored to an admiring service. But the department, probably through some officer who appreciated the situation, sent him to his advocate as first lieutenant that is, as a general manager and right-hand man. The joke was somewhat grim, and grimly resented. It fell to me, a little later, to see the commander on a matter of duty. He received me in his cabin, his feet swathed on a chair, his hands gnarled and knotted with gout or rheumatism, from which he was a great sufferer. Business dispatched, we drifted into talk and got on the subject of Bobby. His face became distorted. I suppose the department thinks it has done a very funny thing in sending me him as first lieutenant. But I tell you, Mr. Mahan, every word I wrote was perfectly true. There is nothing about a ship from her hold to her trucks that Bobby don't know. But here fury took possession of him, and he vociferated, put him on deck, handling men, 
He is the damnedest fool that ever man laid eyes on. How far his sense of injury biased his judgments as to the acquirements of his protégé, I cannot say. But a cruise or two before, I had happened to hear from eyewitnesses of Bobby's appearance in public after his restoration as first lieutenant in charge of the deck. On the occasion in question, he was to exercise the whole crew at some particular maneuver. Taking his stand on the hawse block, he drew from his pocket a small notebook, cast upon it his eye, and announced, doubtless through a trumpet, man the four royal braces. Again a pause, and another reference. Man the main royal braces. Again a pause. Man the mizzen royal braces. Man all the royal braces. It is quite true, however, that there may be plenty of knowledge with lack of power to apply it professionally, a fact observable in all callings, but one which examination alone will not elicit. I knew such a one who said of himself, before I take the trumpet, I know what ought to be said and done, but with the trumpet in my hand, everything goes away from me. Now, this was doubtless partly stage fright, but stage fright does not last where there is real aptitude. This man, of very marked general ability, esteemed and liked by all, finally left the Navy, and probably wisely. On the other hand, I remember a very excellent seaman and officer telling me that the poorest officer he had ever known tacked ship the best. So men differ. Thus it happened, through the operation of a variety of causes, that by the early fifties there had accumulated on the lists of the navy in every grade a number of men who had been tried in the balance of professional judgment and found distinctly wanting not only was the public the nation being wronged by the continuance and positions of responsibility of men who could not meet an emergency or even discharge common duties but there was the further harm that they were occupying places which if vacated could be at once filled by capable men waiting behind them. Fortunately, this had come to constitute a body of individual grievance among the deserving, which counterbalanced the natural sympathy with the individual incompetent. The remedy adopted was drastic enough, although in fact only an application of the principle of selection in a very guarded form. Unhappily, previous neglect to apply selection through a long series of years had now occasioned conditions in which it had to be used on a huge scale, and in the most invidious manner, the selecting out of the unfit. It was therefore easy for cavillers to liken this process to a trial at law, in which unfavorable decision was a condemnation without the accused being heard, and of course once having received this coloring, the impression could not be removed, nor the method reconciled to a public having Anglo-Saxon traditions concerning the administration of justice. A board of fifteen was constituted, five captains, five commanders, and five lieutenants. These were then the only grades of commissioned officers, and represented from them all insured as far as could be an adequate acquaintance with the entire personnel of the Navy. The board sat in secret, reaching its own conclusions, by its own methods, deciding who were and who were not 
fit to be carried longer on the active list. Rejections were of three kinds, those wholly removed, and those retired on two different grades of pay, called retired and furloughed. The report was accepted by the government and became operative. This occurred a year or two before I entered the naval school, and as I was already expecting to do so, I read with an interest I well recall the lists of persons unfavorably affected. Of course, neither then nor afterwards had I knowledge to form an independent opinion upon the merits of the cases. But as far as I could gather, in the immediately succeeding years, from different officers, the general verdict was that in very few instances had injustice been done where I had the opportunity of verifying the mistakes cited to me, I found instead reason rather to corroborate than to impugn the action of the board. But, of course, in so large a review as it had to undertake, even a jury of fifteen experts can scarcely be expected never to err. In the Navy it was a first, and doubtless somewhat crude, attempt to apply the method of selection which every businessman or corporation uses in choosing employees, an arbitrary conclusion based upon personal knowledge and observation, or upon adequate information. But in private affairs such decisions are not regarded as legal judgment, nor rejection as condemnation, and there is no appeal. The private interest of the employer is warrant that he will do the best he can for his business. This presumption does not lie in the case of public affairs, although after the most searching criticism the action of the Board of Fifteen might probably be quoted to prove that selection for promotion could safely be trusted at all times to similar means. I mean that such a body would never recommend an unfit man for promotion, and in three cases out of five would choose very near the best man but no such system can work unless a government have the courage of its findings for private and public opinion will inevitably constitute itself a court of appeal in great britain where the principle of selection has never been abandoned in the application the admiralty is none the less constrained browbeaten i fancy would hardly be too strong a word by opinion outside p has been promoted say the service journals but why was A passed over, or F, or K? Choice is difficult, indeed, in peace times, but years sap efficiency, and for the good of the nation it is imperative to get men along while in the vigor of life, which will never be effected by the slow routine in which each second stands heir to the first. P, possibly, may not be better than A or K but the nation will profit more, and in a matter vital to it, that if P, whose equality may be conceded, has to wait for the whole alphabet to die out of his way. The justice, if so it be, to the individual must not be allowed to impede the essential prosperity of the community. In 1854-55 the results of a contrary system had reached proportions at once disheartening and comical. It then required fourteen years after entrance to reach a lieutenant's commission, the lowest of all, that in coming as a midshipman at fifteen, not till twenty-nine. After ten or twelve years, probably on a seagoing vessel, was a man found fit, by official position, to take charge of a ship at sea, 
or to command a division of guns. True, the famous Billy Culmer of the British Navy, under a system of selection, found himself a midshipman still at fifty-six, and then declined a commission on the ground that he preferred to continue senior midshipman rather than be the junior lieutenant. But the injustice, if so it were, to Billy, and to many others, had put the ships into the hands of captains in the prime of life. Of the historic admirals of that navy, few had failed to reach captaincy in their twenties. Per contra, I was told the following anecdote by an officer of our service whose name was, and is, for he still lives, a synonym for personal activity and professional seamanship, but who waited his fourteen years for a lieutenancy. On one occasion the ship in which he returned to Norfolk from a three-year's cruise was ordered from there to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to go out of commission. For some cause almost all the lieutenants had been detached, the cruise being thought ended. It became necessary, therefore, to entrust the charge of the deck to him and other past midshipmen, and great was the shaking of heads among old stagers over the danger the ship was to run. If this were exceptional, it would not be worth quoting, but it was not. A similar routine in the British Navy, in a dry-rot period of a hundred years before, had induced a like head-wagging and exchange of views, when one of its greatest admirals, Hawk, was first given charge of a squadron, being then already a man of mark and four years older than Nelson at the Nile. But he was younger than the rule, and so distrusted the vacancies made by the wholesale action of 1854 remedied this for a while. The lieutenants who owed their rank to it became such after seven or eight years, or at twenty-three or four, and this meant really passing out of pupilage into manhood. The change being effected immediately anticipated the reaction of public opinion and in Congress, which rejected the findings of the board and compelled a review of the whole procedure. Many restorations were made and as these swelled the lists beyond the number then authorized by law, there was established a reduced pay for those whose recent promotion made them in excess. For them was adopted in naval colloquialism the inelegant but suggestive term jackass lieutenants. It should be explained to the outsider, perhaps even many professional readers now may not know, that the word was formerly used for a class of so-called frigates which intervened between the frigate class proper and the sloop of war proper, and like all hybrids, such as the armoured cruiser, shared more in the defects than in the virtues of either. It was therefore not a new coinage, and its uncomplimentary suggestion applied rather to the grudging legislation than to the unlucky victims. Of course, promotion was stopped till this block was worked off, but the immediate gain was retained. Before the trouble came on afresh, the War of Secession, causing a large number of Southerners to leave the service, introduced a very different problem, namely, how to find officers enough to meet the expansion of the Navy caused by the vast demands of the contest. The men of my time became lieutenants between twenty and twenty-three. My own commission was dated a month before my twenty-first birthday and with what good further prospects, even under the strict rule of seniority promotion, is evident. For before I was twenty-five, I was made lieutenant commander, corresponding to major in the army. Those were cheerful days in this respect for the men who struck the crest of the wave, 
but already the symptoms of inevitable reaction to old conditions of stagnancy were observable to those careful to heed. It would be difficult to exaggerate the benefit of this measure to the nation through the service, despite the subsequent reactionary legislation. By a single act, a large number of officers were advanced from the most subordinate and irresponsible positions to those which called all their faculties into play. Responsibility, said one of the most experienced admirals the world has known, is the test of a man's courage. And where the native fitness exists, nothing so educates for responsibility as the having it. The responsibility of the lieutenant of the watch differs little from that of the captain in degree, and less in kind. To early bearing of responsibility, Farragut attributed in great part his fearlessness in it, which was well known to the service before his hour of strain. It was much that the government found ready for the extreme demands of the war a number of officers, who instead of supervising the washing of lower decks and stowing of holds during their best years, had been put betimes in charge of the ship. From there to the captain's berth was but a small step. Past midshipman, says one of Cooper's characters, is a good grade to reach, but a bad one to stop him. For a fate little better than this, a large and promising number of young officers were thus rescued for the commands and responsibilities of the War of Secession. End of chapter 1